going to begin a series tonight. Uh, don't know if it won't necessarily run every week, but I'm going to pursue this overcoming uh, idea, which is if you understand the biblical doctrine of sanctification, which is how we grow up in Christ, you know that the Christian life is one of overcoming innumerable things. And I wish to identify some of those things, some of those issues, and show you and hope that uh, tonight, for example, overcoming regrets, uh, how we can not become mired down in our struggle and our battles. We use that word, don't we? Struggle. We Yes, we use the word Christian life is a battle. Um, but we don't want to come off as defeatist, like we're always backpedaling and just trying to uh, dodge blows and just defend ourselves. We want to think, as the Bible would, God would have us to think, is that how we move forward, how we become more like Christ, how we become more useful to him. So this is the idea that I see in, in this overcoming. And as we take tonight, we're going to take the overcoming regrets. I'm going to read a few verses from Philippians, and I'm going to be in this passage a couple of ways and times tonight. But I'd like to read in Philippians in chapter 3, and if you will follow along with me, I'm going to begin to read at verse, I'm going to read verse 12. It is in the middle of a very uh, tight line of thought. Paul has been rehearsing something of his past, and he's had to pull out his credentials as to what he was, but yet that that which he was didn't bring him any closer to God. Actually, it kept him from the Lord. But now his occupation here, preoccupation in this line of thought in verse 12 and following is moving forward, making progress. So listen, I'll take us to verse, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ, by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, yet, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We understand regret, the term, the word regret, but just in case we're a little rusty on it, I suspect that maybe, as best as I can calculate by the weather forecast, that on Wednesday morning, that there will be people who will have regretted that they have not gotten the right coolant level in their automobiles. And that other things as well, perhaps they have not made the necessary adjustments for uh, a hard freeze if your car has to sit out overnight. We understand how regret works. It's feeling of, the dictionary defines it as a feeling of being sorry. It is uh, that sense of loss. Um, We could say something, for example, like it was a matter of regret that I was unable to see my loved one before he or she died on Thursday. And one may carry a regret. Maybe one had an opportunity to see them and one didn't. And therefore, we know what regret can be like. Regrets. There are, there are, as I would see it, at least, Regrets can fall into two categories, what I would call circumstantial regrets, circumstantial 
and material regrets. That is, decisions we've made, uh, the consequences of those decisions, and for whatever reasons, maybe procrastination or just bad judgment. But then there are those relational regrets. Relational regrets would be those impairments, those, the brokenness of relationships. Be a marriage, could be in a home with children and parents uh, disenfranchised from one another. That kind of thing. Relational regrets. Marriage is one that uh, gathers up a lot of people, and we can understand and identify with maybe failure to give attention to a relationship. One can be married for 10, 15, 25, 30 years and suddenly recall the fact that, uh, or it dawns on them, they have an epiphany that they've not given more time to the relationship. Time has gone elsewhere. So these are the kinds of things that uh, enter into the subject, and I'd like to just read briefly the paragraph that I set up this morning for us and to call our attention in on this subject of regret. We all have them, but quite often don't know what to do with them. I'm referring to regrets. Part of the problem is not knowing how to sort them out. There are regrets about health issues, about character, happiness, family, job, financial decisions, a broken marriage, wasted time, procrastination, child-rearing, an impulsive shopping habit, and the list can go on and on and on. I would be interesting as to what kind of thought has already come to your mind as to some regret something or another. I'm not here tonight to try to stir you up to get you just to feel down because you have a regret, but uh, I want to take us to the hope that we find in Christ in how we can overcome regrets. So there's no silver bullet to handling regrets, There is the, but there is a right place to start, and that's what I'm going to do this evening. So let's go there. And... I'm going to propose my regret, this issue of, uh, or addressing the issue of regret. I'm going to focus in on relational regret, but then I'm going to come back in a conclusion, and I want to circle back and deal with, well, relational circumstantial things as well, because I, I realize this is a pretty m- massive subject, and I, I don't want to minimize any kind of regret. That, that I certainly don't want it to be outside of our thought process when it comes to theology and how God wants us to come in any regret, no matter what it is. So let me have at it that way, and let's start out with this, and let's just deal with relational regret, which uh, this is, uh, I'll frame it this way. I'm going to use some names here. These names are chosen to protect people. They're not anybody I know, but you understand how I will have to use them. So Alice was devastated when she learned that Ryan had been carrying on an affair with a woman at Ryan's place of work. Ryan repented and confessed his sin. He asked Alice's forgiveness. He said he wanted to save his marriage. Alice said she had forgiven Ryan, but was having a hard time forgetting what he had done. The thoughts of Ryan deceiving her in what he did were making her life miserable. Can Alice forgive and forget? You saw the word forget in Philippians, so I'm not pulling it out of the air, but what does it mean? Is Alice to forgive and not forget? Alice is being tormented by the past. Alice is a professing Christian. 
She goes to a Bible teaching church. Alice has questions about this painful part of her life. Why can't she seem to move on with her life? Ryan is also tormented. He's tormented by his regrets. He thinks back over a life, a marriage, and relationship, and decisions he made, which have created this awful set of circumstances. Painful. And, of course, Alice has her own regrets. There are losses. There is the loss of a dream. There are the hopes for the future that now are altered significantly. And her past is is affecting her present and her future. She's angry at Ryan and fearful that he might do what he has done, that he might do it again. Allison listens to Christian radio. On her favorite call-in counseling program, she hears a popular author and psychologist urging his radio audience to go to qualified therapists who are trained to lead you into a deep and thorough understanding of the past. If you, if you haven't unearthed your past, you don't know the real you, she's told. Alice can't seem, uh, quite, uh, seem to quite uh, bring up uh, and know what to do with Ryan's adultery. She keeps finding herself going to it, bringing it up, and using it at times. And she feels guilty because she feels like she's using it as a weapon against him to kind of keep him in line, make his behavior better. She knows better. Is something deeper going on? Could there be other things in her past, things not dealt with, that this experience with her husband has exposed? So, yes, Alice has definitely... Uh, her, our, our past definitely affects our past as well as our future. If you want to analyze the past, if you want to study it, where is the place to go? How does one deal with one's past? One, one must go to the eternal, all-sufficient Word of God. God has spoken to it. God is the only one who has lived everyone's past and everyone's present and everyone's future he is, he is omnipotent, he is infinitely wise, he is omniscient and knows everything. God is the God of eternity, and he's given us his word which speaks to our past. I want to reference something, if you will look in Philippians 3, I want to make a couple of comments on Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, which will give a frame for what I'm about to say, and I'm going to offer you three biblical propositions with regard to the Alice and Ryan uh, conflict, dealing with the brokenness in a relationship, regrets. But I want to have us look at something in Philippians. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to call attention to three matters that come up in the passage. First of all, you'll notice in this passage in Philippians 3 that Paul is looking ahead to the completion of his salvation. He's thinking forwardly. Verse 12. He uses the language there, I press on. The word in the original there is the word dioko, D-I-O-K-O. Um, runners ought to be able to appreciate this word. It is a running word. It means to run swiftly to catch some person or thing. I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, I would like to, once all the germ carriers get back to school, I think maybe we may go to see Unbroken. And one of the highlights, I've read the book. And it's the story of Louis Zapparini. 
And he put on this incredible kick. I think that in his race, he probably ran the 5,000 meters. Some have said it's the mile, but as I recall, it was 5,000 meters. He put on this incredible kick at the end, and so powerfully so that he even pressed the the Führer. And uh, that's where, you know, he had the occasion to go and to meet Adolf Hitler as uh, Louis Samperini did this. Well, the word to describe what he did and if anybody's seen the movie, you don't, don't tell me exactly how they portrayed it. I'd like to see. If hopefully they haven't uh, made it hokey. But uh, anyway, this is, this is what Paul is thinking. To run swiftly, to catch. I pursue. It's that intense strain. The second thing is that you will notice in, this, in these verses that the manner of attainment, how he presses forward, he explains it by two participles. The two participles, the first of which is the word forgetting what is behind. So there is something in that, then, it's a future orientation. That's the way he's thinking. What was done was done, not dwelling on the past. This is the idea of forgetting what is behind. The second participle that he uses here to describe this uh, process of pursuing the goal, is straining toward what is ahead. Very interesting word. It's a double compound word in the Greek, which uh, in the English brings, uh, you can see it's, even the word is a strain to represent. It's the intensity of focus, the body motion, the uh, picking up the pace, focusing on everything, and all one's mental and physical discipline that's necessary that comes to the moment. Well, this is what Paul is saying with regard to his view of the future. So forgetting what's behind, a future orientation, straining toward what is hit, there is mental and physical discipline that are absolutely necessary. All right, and then thirdly, that the point is, and if I may draw a little intermediate of application, So we must not let anything in the past distract us from finishing the race. I think that's the core truth here in this matter of overcoming regret. We must not let anything distract us from finishing the race, finishing it well. So immediately we should have a sense of, I think from this, what Paul is saying here, what God would have us to think about ourselves as We have responsibility to deal with whatever regrets have accumulated and that they should not become so powerful and so dominating that they're controlling us rather than confidence in God, trust in him, finishing well. All right, now I want to present these three uh, principles. Let's go forwards and let's look at the first. We forget the past. We forget the past when we forgive the way God forgives. Ephesians 4, 32, 5, 1. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as motivation, motivation, just as how God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What does this mean? When God forgives, he does not remember our sins against us. We're starting with God here. We're looking at how he forgives. 
And then we'll move forward and see that that's the paradigm. That's the model. That's the direction in which we should go. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. For I forgive their, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Now, you pick up on the word remember. You may have, you, you may have want to take issue with it. Remember, what is God's omniscient? Does actually God impose upon himself? Is, does God contract a, a case of holy amnesia regarding our sins? As sometimes is presented in justification, you know, it's justified, never sin, and God then, you know, as it's popularly told, then we come before God, and God says, what sin? Um, I can't go there theologically. <laughs> That's not, it's not that God doesn't have any record of this in his, in his eternal um, thought. It's, well, I'll show you what he, I think he's saying. He's, when he says he's omniscient, he never forgets anything. To not remember means that God, and this is the key, actively refuses to count our sins against us. So it's the way in which he deals with our sins. That he actively refuses to count our sins against us. Now, <clears throat> I have, and for the sake of time, I'm, I know it's probably not good etiquette to do this, tell you what I would have said and then not say it. Um, but there's an excellent study. I can, I can give you a, just a brief, a brief fly-through there is a wonderful summary of this truth in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And, <clears throat> and in Psalm 32, where David is dealing with some confession of sin, and there are three different ways of saying that we are forgiven, and they're quite enlightening. They are, well, David uses the word forgiven to describe how God related, uh, relates to his own sin. And that word means to be lifted up or removed or carried away. One of the best pictures I can think of it is that film I've seen somewhere along the line a couple of times at least, Pilgrim's Progress. You don't have to see the film. It's in the book, in Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's just carrying this enormous load on his back. But he, then he comes to the cross. And when Pilgrim has that moment, that epiphany, that moment of conversion, the moment of forgiveness, what happens? You see that big load just drop off his back, and it starts rolling and rolling. And where does it go? It goes to the empty tomb. <laughs> it's a beautiful word picture. And <clears throat> this is the idea that is used there in Psalm 32 when he said, forgiven, to be lifted up, to remove, to be carried away. That's what God does with our sin. But then he says also there, <clears throat> sin is covered. Sin is covered. And the forgiveness of one's sin means that there is a hiding of the sin from God's sight. The best picture of this is the transaction in the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was the blood covered the sins of the people, of the nation, when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement. So there was a covering for their sins. And when God looked, what did he see? Not the sin, but he saw the blood that covered it. And then there's a third term that's used there in Psalm 32, that he does not impute iniquity. Yet another picture. If you didn't get the first one, appreciate it. 
Second one, all right, try the third one on for size. That forgiveness is, <clears throat> is God not counting our sin against us. It's, um, you perhaps have had the experience of having something show up on your credit card account that's not yours. You always want to check them out. <clears throat> we had something like this happen to us a few months ago. Do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? Well, to make a long story short, to find out that it would seem that there was something that was there that was not ours. So the debit ends up being a credit, like those turnabouts. <laughs> but that's the idea. He says, does not impute iniquity. So the debit is a credit. Well, the credit is that work which God has done in Jesus Christ to give us the righteousness of Christ in the new birth and justification before him. And so he sees us in that way. All right. Uh, let's, let's go to the second issue here um, that comes up. Namely, when we repent and confess our sins, God will not withhold forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So here's the idea. I, the offender, I, the sinner, because I change my mind about sin and acknowledge it to God and receive what I need rather than what I deserve. This is what the psalmist had in mind when he said, God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103 and verse 10. So let's go back here to Alice and Ryan for just a moment. All right, let's say your spouse sins against you. May not necessarily be adultery, but in some way or another, you've been sinned against. And maybe there's been a lie. Maybe there has been an offensive word, a word said in anger. So what do we do? When you forgive them, it's not something that is used against them. Now, I know some, <clears throat> in some, those who present this issue say, well, you don't bring, ever bring it up again. And I think that tends to create a little unnecessary frustration with people who say you don't bring it up again because you can think of situations and maybe where it would come up again. Um, how? Thanksgiving to God that he's forgiven us. Maybe it could be a, a, a productive occasion to discuss how we can learn from the past, learn through biblical wisdom. But it is, the point is, is that you're not bringing up the charge, up the sin, as a means of relating to the person with a charge against them, like as a debtor to you, <clears throat> one that owes you something or uncovering it for the purpose of exposing them and embarrassing them and humiliating them, that kind of thing. And I need to pause here and put, put a, just a little sidebar on something that I know this is such a massive subject and you can go off in directions that, well, for example, what if molestation has taken place? What if someone has molested you or you know someone who has been sexually molested? You say forgive and forget. 
Well, that brings up a whole specter of issues. Then let it forget. How in the world could I ever forget? And wait a minute, forgive? Um, this is brought, I think, a, a wrong understanding of what it means to forgive and to forget has really put some Christians in Christian organizations, has put them in a, in, I would say, harm's way, has put them rightfully so in harm's way, that they've opened themselves up to criticism. That <clears throat> I know of some mission boards, churches, Christian organizations, where there has been sexual molestation, maybe in a school, and students have been violated, and the counsel is to forgive, forget, and go on, and then the perpetrators of those sins are never held accountable for their actions, and it's never dealt with. And maybe it was even a breaking of the law. So there needs to be the place. Forgiving doesn't rule out the necessity for justice and for that person to be held accountable so that they don't do what they have done and they don't do it again. So that's with that caveat there that's important to understand when I speak of these words, forgive and forget, lest we just, well, mis- I don't want to misrepresent them. So let's, uh, let's put it this way. Does this mean then, does this mean that the episode, whatever it is, a molestation or a serious breach in the marriage relationship, adultery, Does this mean that the whole episode is to immediately vanish from your mind? Is it to be erased from one's memory? Is that what is involved? No, it does not. That's unrealistic. There is no such commandment in the Bible to have some kind of self-imposed sense of denial, if you will. But what does it mean? What does forgiveness mean? It means that my relationship with my spouse is not to be based on that sin. A complete change in my relationship is to begin to take place. You know, say, begin. It's going to take work. It's going to take rebuilding of trust. It's going to take a lot of work and time and attention and repentance and forgiveness and humility and discussion. Do I want to change the past? then I must be obedient to God and deal with the past his way. How do we know if true repentance has taken place? How would I know if if I have accepted and forgiven the one who has sinned against me? I think that's a necessary question, isn't it? Lest I begin to kind of play a game with myself. It makes myself believe something that's not true. I look for fruit. That's what I would look for. It takes time for fruit to grow, does it not? And forgetting then can take place, as one writer puts it, when fruit is discerned, forgetting then becomes possible. So fruit bearing my love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, meekness and self-control. And so, therefore, <clears throat> if I have repented, then in time it will be evident in my efforts to re- to. To build a new relationship. What's going on? What's it look like now? How do you speak to one another? What's the tone of your voice? What are the courtesies and the manners that are necessary in a relationship? Are they there? Is there kindness? Is there, <clears throat> is there gentleness? Is there compassion? Is there helpfulness? Is there a sense, is there humility in, in the relationship? So, Let's go on from that point. So let me, let me just walk through, uh, let me rehearse something here just a moment. 
Okay, I want to back up just for a second. And I want to say something with regard to what uh, forgiveness is not. And I'll be brief here, but I think it needs to give, we need to give it attention. Forgiving is not forgetting. All we need to do to forget is have a bad memory. So, two. Forgiving is not excusing. One could put it in the realm of genetics or, you know, it's just the way I am. You've got to take me the way I am, that kind of thing. Forgiving is not smoothing things over. That when you forgive, you build a new kind of relationship. So forgiveness is a process. It's not just the exchange of words like, Hey, I forgive you. All right, what's for supper? It's the beginning of a way of living and thinking that's entirely new. Now the orientation is love. It's not the orientation is not revenge. It's not anger. It's not bitterness. It's not vengeance. What is it? It is living out the meaning of forgiveness as God forgives us. So, but before we leave this principle... Let me state one more thing, the way God forgives us. It's going to be helpful to remember the symptoms of a refusal to forgive. Maybe we ought to just briefly go by that. What are some of the symptoms that I haven't forgiven? And therefore, the whole matter of overcoming regrets breaks down. Do I talk to about a person's sin to others? Do I find some sort of satisfaction And using how I was sinned against to use that to get back at that person. What's the motivation? Do I take a martyr's stance? The use of self-pity. The use of victimhood. Trying to insulate myself from criticism by becoming a victim. What, for example, what, what, what did I do to drive... Charles into this, <clears throat> that kind of thing. Or I just, I just keep on thinking what it must have been like for so-and-so to, to go to bed with him, that kind of thing. Or no matter what I do or, or where, where <clears throat> I just can't, where is God, I can't stop thinking about what he said to me. So using this martyr stance, that seeing oneself as a victim. I don't want to tell you, victimhood can just be just absolutely life-destroying when you get into that mode of defining yourself. I may, I may adopt a strategy of seeking to get the offender to suffer more. <clears throat> I keep bringing it up. Or I can keep a scorecard of the, of the wrong that I've suffered. And I can add other things into it. All right, let's take the next We are not to forget the lessons of the past. If I'm to handle my past biblically, I will learn that genuine forgiveness leads to forgetting. I must, as we say, bury the hatchet. I must not raise the issue of the offense as a means of of treating them as if they were in debt, as to what I referred to earlier, that they are in debt to me, and so treat them as that way. 
But <clears throat> there are some things in my past that I mustn't forget. I'm called upon by God to remember some very important lessons in from the past. For example, Deuteronomy 9-7. Remember, do not forget. Israel, the point there in the context is Israel had provoked the Lord. Moses reminded Israel of their behavior from the time they left Egypt until the time they arrived at the Jordan. So he recites Israel's sins and their failures. Deuteronomy 10:11. It has been the grace of God that has kept them from destruction. Give thanks to God. Look what you've done, but look what God has done. Well, failure can be, then, the back door to success. Israel faced great obstacles in possessing the land. She had failed the Lord miserably, and an entire generation was chastened by the Lord and died in the wilderness. They must learn from their past, not repeat their disobedience. Uh, there's another good example that can go at this point in David and his life and experience, but I'm going to jump over that, and I want to just remind you of a, one in the New Testament, namely, in Peter's case, he's an example of this principle. In Luke 22:32, Jesus said to Peter, "Once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter had been sifted by Satan. You recall that he wants you to sift you. Of course, Satan was trying to break Peter loose from his allegiance to the Lord. But the Lord uh, did some jujitsu on him and turned it and flipped it all around. And he broke Peter loose from his self-confidence. And Satan said, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) But God so used the experience to do that in Peter's life. Peter learned the danger of self-confidence and the necessity of dependence on God. So, therefore, we can see two issues that come up here. One is sin is not the teacher. Sin, sin and failure in the past have damaged me. And I'm not what I would have been if it had not happened. Sin leaves scars. And as we look over the past and recall times of sinful behavior and God's forgiveness and restoration, we can rejoice in what God's done for us. And we should. Sin's ugly. And we don't sin in order to learn the ways of God. But we will sin. Perhaps you've heard people say, well, I'll sin and just ask forgiveness. That is, to say the least, a very shallow and a certainly totally unbiblical approach to to sin. Because you become something different when you sin. You're not the same person afterward. And there are losses that evil, which evil creates, that you can't get back. So what am I going to do then? Sin's not the teacher. I don't, sometimes evangelical we Christians, we can be really enamored with people who've been in these, what we say, really, really, really bad experiences, you know, drugs, prostitution, crime, whatever. And I've been seen meetings where those who've come out of that draw massive crowds and people just come and Quite often, Christians who've seen themselves somewhat sheltered get entertained by all this stuff, and you begin to think, well, my, if I had just sinned more, I could really just be, <laughs> I could be a much more powerful Christian and be much more used to God. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold time out. No. Who's the teacher? Wisdom is the teacher. Wisdom is the teacher. I've been taught about my weaknesses, how easily I can yield to temptation in the right circumstances. You have those moments? That's one thing they regret can, can become as, as, 
is wisdom comes to the head of the class and teaches us. I, I looked when I, I should not have looked. I thought what I should not have thought. I rationalized my sinful desires and encouraged them further. I hurt someone with my tongue. I shouldn't be using my tongue that way. That's not the way God, what does God want? How does he want me to use my tongue? Maybe I need to do some, maybe I just need to remember, get up every day, Lord, set a guard over my mouth, oh Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. I need to pray like that every day. And so I've, maybe I've lived in pursuit of physical pleasures. Material things have just been all too important to me. So you see, wisdom can be instructive. This go to the book of Proverbs. And selfishness, it can be satisfying. Immorality can be appealing. Anger, it, uh, it doesn't seem to help me control others. So, you know, this anger thing that I've used to try to use as the big stick to get my way. And you begin to see penetratingly through it by the power of the Spirit of God as he opens up things and you see self-deceptions. This is where wisdom then is the teacher. So, can any good then come out of all of this? Can the evil which others have committed against me have any possible value in the present? Is it possible? What about the losses and the pain that I've suffered, which have been the direct result of someone else's sin? All right? Two things. Two important truths come up at this point. And, well, they're not on the, on the slide, but they have these. The wisdom of God ought to teach us these two important truths. One is... My own sin and failure ought to make me more discerning regarding my potential for self-deception. That's what wisdom teaches. My own sin and failure ought to make me more discerning regarding my potential for self-deception. We could all tell heartbreaking stories, gut-wrenching stories, stories of regret where we have deceived ourselves. Some of us re- repeat the same foolish sins Because why? We have terrible memories. (laughs) Augustine's motto fits well here. St. Augustine, he says, The beginning of knowledge is to know thyself to be a sinner. So the joy of God's nearness and restoration ought to instruct me in how to be more careful in my thoughts and words and actions. All right, a second principle. Wisdom shows up. Secondly, the effect of sin and the failure of others and failure of others upon me should teach me to be gentle and patient with others. I ought to be a different kind of person. Am I more merciful than I once was? Am I more cautious when I enter into certain social situations? Am I more observant of the hardships of others? So we ought not to forget the lessons of the past. There's something that is useful when looking at the past and when we come to this matter of regrets. And then let's go to the third and final principle here. Forgetting the past helps us to live for the future. Now, you want to come back into Philippians chapter 3. Here's Paul in a Roman jail. That's where he writes Philippians. And he, as I said, he goes, uh, went through this matter of what it means to forgive and to forget. And I want to, without going through those, you know, the issue of the participles and the pressing on to the future, I want to mention two, two issues. 
that we need to exercise sanctified forgetting. The key word here, sanctified forgetting. I must not allow anything in the past to keep me from making progress in my Christian life. Is something shutting you down? Is something keeping you from gaining traction? Are you revisiting something often by your own choices that keep pulling you down? Jesus said it this way. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 Looking back will make the furrow crooked. Anybody ever had any experience? I did as a child. My uncle lived, had a big garden, and we'd get to go. And one of the pleasures was to take, not a horse and a plow, never had that pleasure, but to take his, uh, his uh, tiller, thank you, take his tiller, and I was at least big enough as a young teenager, and, boy, it was it was you know, to put that thing, and he had such good, rich dirt. You know, I can just see it just kind of falling out now before you. But, you know, you begin to, you want to look back and see what you've done, and then you get down to the end of the line. You know, you're seeing what you shouldn't be seeing. So be careful about looking back. And sanctified forgetting is the refusal to let my former life hold me down and keep me from being useful to God. Like weights, the past can slow me down. Being a, a leeks and garlic Christian, like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they just couldn't get those leeks and garlic. Now, why you couldn't get leeks and garlics out of your mind, I don't know. But uh, that was it was good. It was good food for them. It represent, represented good times. And so, looking back, do do you allow unwanted thoughts to go unchallenged? It's easy for us to get into that way of thinking that we just let whatever thoughts show up that we therefore think that they then are our master and we must yield to them and take, let them take us where they want to go. I say, oh, no, 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 get hold of them. Put up a fight. What are you, a sissy? <laughs> I've had to catch myself, catch myself. I think just because a thought comes in, and you can play with a thought for a little while that somehow I've got to follow it where it leads me. Oh, no, I don't. I pray, God, help me. God, help me. And so, therefore, there's got to be sanctified forgetting. I can say, do you talk about the past too much? That's a possibility that you can just find yourself kind of letting it become a playground. And uh, you can kind of, you don't have any evil intent necessarily, but you can bring up past regrets and situations and disappointments and ways people have hurt you and disappointed you and sinned against you. You can kind of go there like it's an amusement park. And before you know it, you're trapped, you're caught. And then we must exercise sanctified remembering. Sanctified remembering. It's like the runner then. Come back to what the dioko the, and the pressing forward. That I must, like a runner, I need to focus on the finishing the race. Extend, extend myself. The prize. What is it? Future orientation. Where I'm going. Going to meet the Lord. I'm going to see Him face to face. That's where I'm going. 
So sanctified remembering then is calling to mind the purpose of my life. What God wants me to be and do. It's remembering his grace. Ah, it's sanctified remembering. All right, then I want to make a conclusion. And I hope I'm, I don't want to overstay my welcome here on time. I know it, <clears throat> I wanted to get us out of here at 7. I'm already at 5 after. But I did think that it, this could be helpful because I did sense that there might have been some loose ends. And I'm going to just really go at them quickly without elaborating. Because I know I've been dealing in the realm of some rather serious relational uh, breakdowns, you know, divorce and adultery and molestation and sinning against one another. But, you know, there are a lot of other things in life that come in and show up and dressed in regrets. And I, well, I'll let them speak for themselves. I just offer these with these principles and whatever regrets you're, you're dealing with, uh, for example, procrastination. Is anybody here familiar with procrastination? Uh, I didn't think so. All right. So uh, procrastination and we get ourselves unintended consequences because we don't get things done when we should. And then we I've, I've had that truth. It's like not computer backups and, you know, not using your flash drive when you should. And then everything falls in on you. Well, one principle here is start over. Where are you now? Change your ways. You can sit there and you can go on a self-pity drunk and just, you know, knock your head up against the wall, but start over. Do something. Change your ways. Another principle here with regard to regrets is that um, what have you wanted that is... Best that you have not, that you should not have wanted it. Um, maybe you've wanted something and you've created maybe your own personal safety, security, pleasure. Is that what's going on with your regrets? As you look back over things that you've done or not done, um, could be financial issues. You've gotten yourself into some serious financial problems, and credit card debt and so on. What is it that you've wanted? Uh, let's get back into and revisit that. Is what is it that's most important? Is I want to please God more than anything else in life. And also, thirdly, we tend to interpret life from the shadows, not the light. That's one way in which we can uh, regrets can just really haunt us and ruin us. Is that we tend to interpret life from the shadows, not from the light. And I'll give you an example here. You remember Jacob uh, in Genesis 42? Uh, his sons come back from Egypt and tell him that we got a problem, Dad. Uh, Simeon is back there in Egypt, and he is being held hostage by the Pharaoh so that we can bring the youngest, Benjamin, and we can bring him back. And then just Jacob just loses it. <laughs> he, said, he said that all these things are against me. Joseph is no more. Simeon's no more, and now you would take Benjamin. Well, we got hindsight there, don't we? <laughs> we know what God was doing. It was actually Joseph down there incognito, and he was getting ready to have this wonderful family reunion. But here was Jacob interpreting life from the shadows. So we have to take this into account. Our regrets don't necessarily define 
they don't define the total, the sum total of the picture, lest we bathe in them and soak in them. And then another, uh, never underestimate the power of God's grace. You know what comes to mind here? The passage that Justin referenced this morning. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Paul's regrets? He had some serious regrets, wouldn't you say? He, that he had, he had taken, he'd gone after Christians. He had kept, he had kept people from coming to Christ, humanly speaking. It stood in the way of God. He'd been an enemy of the gospel. How would you like that on your resume? And Paul just goes on with thanks to God, and he said he's the chief of sinners, that I think he's probably thinking of the degree of the degree to which he sinned. But God can take dunghills and turn them into gardens. So no matter what you're, this is a pre-conversion um, issue here. Whatever happened in your past before you were saved, and that um, think of the power of God's grace for changing, for forgiving, and giving you new direction. And then lastly here, what about the Christian? He takes, God takes our losses as a Christian and turns them into gain. How? By God's infinitely wise and loving purposes. And you know the classic verse here. Romans eight twenty eight: All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and they're called according to his purpose. Revisit that. When he says good, that doesn't mean that he's going to make you feel all comfy and better. It means he's going to conform you to Christ. And that may mean more affliction and more difficulty. But he's working it out for the purposes of bringing more fruit into one's life. And then Paul goes on there in Romans 8 and 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And he, goes, and he just gives this golden chain. This golden chain going all the way back to eternity past and all the way forward to eternity future. Look at what God is doing on your behalf. Look at the big picture. And here is the part in which you are now, where the part you're playing now in this. And look at what God is doing in your life. So things aren't unfolding in a way that you think are really great. I've got these regrets and I wish this hadn't happened. All things work together for good. Hey, you've got God's word on it. And look at your regrets in that context. And don't let them sit up there as sovereign, determining who you are and how you should be living. All right. I went uh, over about 10, 12 minutes, but I thought I should, just in case, and this would be a good time to break up and to go into some uh, breakout session, I guess. And this is where we could talk and encourage one another. I'll just leave this with you that, You will take this and ponder these uh, points and let the Spirit of God direct them and help us. This wasn't intended to be a New Year's message. I just, I picked it and then I thought, oh, hey, it is the first Sunday in the New Year. (laughs) But maybe it is timely to think about, as we think about setting a new direction and getting some, certainly some psychological momentum for the coming year. And uh, let's pray to that end. Lord, I pray for the one here tonight. Lord, we all have those regrets that show up at our door, wake us up in the middle of the night, keep us from eating, take our hunger away, bring tears to our eyes. Lord, those, that sense of loss which sin creates, but Father, you're greater than, so help us. And that one tonight, Lord, who's fighting a special battle with regrets, I pray, God, that you will show yourself all-sufficient 
and that your joy can be our strength. May it be so for all of us this year. In Christ's name, amen.